Welcome to the Robert Half Legal Report, where we discuss current issues impacting the legal profession related to hiring, staff management, and more with leading experts in the field. Robert Half Legal provides lawyers, paralegals, and support staff to law firms and corporate legal departments on a project and full-time basis. The Robert Half Legal Report is here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Robert Half Legal Report. We're glad you could listen today. I'm your host, Dawn Antonelli, District Director for Robert Half Legal. I'm pleased to introduce our guest today. Our first guest is attorney Chad Volker, Executive Director of Robert Half Legal, the premier provider of experienced project and full-time professionals for law firms and corporate legal departments. Chad began his staffing industry career when he joined Robert Half in 1999 and has served as vice president of national accounts for the company. He has been instrumental in the national expansion of Robert Half Legal, which has locations in major markets throughout the United States and Canada. Welcome, Chad. Thanks, Dawn. Glad to be here with Legal Talk Network again. Great. Our next guest is Joel Westoff, an e-discovery expert, certified information systems security professional, former practicing attorney, and director of Pertivity, Inc. Pertivity is a global consulting and internal audit firm specializing in risk and advisory services. Joel's e-discovery work covers a wide range of services and technical requirements, including choosing and overseeing hosting and document analysis platforms, and client coordination and collaboration. His e-discovery work often deals with internal investigations, transnational litigation, government investigations, and internal collections. Welcome, Joel. Thank you, Dawn. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Our topic today is e-discovery, practical tips for maximizing control. It's a subject that's top of mind with many of us in the legal profession and for good reason. Studies show that nine out of 10 U.S. companies are pulled into lawsuits and an organization can spend more than 70% of its entire legal budget on litigation and regulatory actions. In a lawsuit, the discovery phase alone can represent over 50% of total litigation costs, with e-discovery consuming more than half of that budget. The complexity of e-discovery and the wide range of issues and questions it raises will continue to grow over time, but there are ways to gain better control over the process. We're here today to discuss some practical points for lawyers and legal support staff. So to start, let's discuss some of the major questions that surround the e-discovery process. What are these questions, and why do they sometimes cause confusion? Yeah, and I'm going to start uh, talking about some of those questions. There are two central questions that we want to ask at the beginning of the e-discovery process, Don. Specifically, when and what, and both of those terms relate to preservation. When does the trigger date start the need to preserve, and then what do you do to address the, the issues around electronic discovery. Uh, some of the things that lawyers don't always know is when does the trigger kick off? The standard definition in the law is the trigger should commence when one can reasonably anticipate litigation or investigation. That's a matter of interpretation depending on which side you're on. Uh, that's the standard. Let's talk a little bit about what one needs to do once that trigger is decided to go on. And again, that trigger is going to vary depending on the type of case, uh, the knowledge that the the firm or the client has pending the investigation. So several of the leading cases 
uh, starting with the Zubalake line of cases by Judge Shira Scheinlin, and then following up with the Pension Committee case uh, this year in 2010, outline the type of things that lawyers need to do and their team need to do once that litigation kicks off. Specifically, they need to get a SWAT team in place, and that team needs to be focusing on key elements to make sure that they preserve information for future review and downstream analysis. Some of those issues include making sure that the client is sent a written litigation hold notice describing what needs to be held and what need information should be included underneath that hold. Specifically, the client needs to understand that they need to stop destruction. They need to identify all key players and ensure that records are kept. They need to identify former employees who may possess information on whose laptops information may be stored, which may contain information relevant to the overall case. Uh, Finally, the thing that lawyers need to understand is that this is a non-delegable duty. In other words, you cannot say to your client, please keep all information, please preserve all information, and then wipe your hands and walk away. You cannot do that. The courts are looking much more aggressively at the lawyers and making sure that they're involved at each stage of the process, at least from an oversight standpoint. You know, and I I would just say, uh, Joel, that on the legal side, um, those are right on right on the money. I think uh, what we find from a staffing uh, perspective is being brought in early in that process to avoid the fire drill. I think you outlined really the strategy and the steps that they need to go through. Um, part of what we see uh, with law firms as well as corporate legal departments are they're not planning in advance for how they're eventually going to review that material that's being held, the discoverable discoverable information. And so I think it's really important um, during the early stages of a case to map out your strategy about what review tool is going to make sense to review these type of documents later on as you're preparing for trial. How are you going to handle that from an internal staff perspective? Are there people you can move around? Are there people you can lean on with the expertise within your law firm or legal department? And then the final piece is, do you need to go to an outside uh, vendor staffing type of an operation to be able to bring in additional experts and additional individuals that can help you manage that workload as you move forward? So I would just say to the group, better to plan early than have to be involved in a fire drill later on because you didn't map out your strategy. And that, that's exactly correct. Particularly with the new federal rules, they're not so new anymore. They started in 2006. But what the federal rules put in place is a mechanism to drive attorneys, non-attorneys, and the client to make sure that they are properly prepared for meet and confer and negotiations with the other side. And all the things that Chad just talked about are issues that counsel should be considering on day two. Day two, right after you receive the complaint, right after you see the notice, there are a number of different things that take place at a legal standpoint, from a strategic perspective, from a technical perspective. Those range from sending the notices out, conducting sampling of the of the data populations, identifying custodians. Uh, and again, we're talking about some things that we'll be talking in a few minutes from now, but absolutely there are a number of different things that need to be taken uh, into consideration from uh, from really the, the first day the, the complaint is filed. Okay, that's great information. The next question really is for both of you. Where do people often stumble in the process? Right, and that's That is a key question because what we're seeing is that many of the courts and the sanctions that come down 
are directly related to activities or the lack of those activities and steps that should have been taken in the first 100 days from the time the complaint is filed. Typically, the first 100 days, 120 days from the time the complaint is filed and prior to the meet and confer, there are any number of things that should take place but often do not take place. And let me give you a couple examples. Uh, many times, the law firms uh, or lawyers or, and their clients will rush in and try to do certain things without fully understanding the scope of the data, where it exists, the nature of the case, some of the complexities relating to the type of documents, the type of storage locations, backup tapes, mobile media, things like social media. So I, I, I would focus on number one, rushing in is a problem. Uh, the, the, the answer to that is taking the time to plan. Uh, number two is getting a, a team in place. Uh, if you don't have a, a team in place, it's very difficult to pull all the appropriate resources under the same house, make appropriate decisions at the right time. Some of the issues that we see is self-collection. We're hearing a lot about self-collection. Should the client just collect the information by themselves, make that determination? That's very dangerous. Uh, lawyers shouldn't be collecting emails or hard drives personally. You do not want to be a witness in your own case. Consequences of doing that include spoliation which is another way of saying destroying either intentionally or unintentionally information that may be relevant downstream. Uh, the parties uh, must understand computers, client systems, data retention architecture. One of the key issues from the Zubalik line of decisions is the mandate that lawyers must understand their document retention architecture. That can be very, very confusing, and many IT managers do not understand that within their own house. Uh, finally, under this category of self-collection, you can't rush the process. Everyone who thinks that things can be done immediately under a very quick timeline haven't been involved in too many e-discovery cases. Uh, the dichotomy here is that you've got the litigation process sometimes pushing a very fast pace, but in fact, the process underneath that needs to be very methodical and well thought through. Well, I think picking up on your thought, Joel, as you mentioned, uh, the data and the technology is really a second stumbling block that we see is not choosing technology tools appropriately. Really, those technology tools are only useful when a business process is already in place. So again, going back to the, uh, you know, sort of the birth of the litigation or the matter or the investigation, you need to begin to quickly analyze um, through those data pools that uh, you're handling for the client and that the client's going through, what review tool and technology is really going to be useful for the lifespan of the case. And maybe it might be multiple tools. Maybe you're doing something on the front end and utilizing a review tool later on. But I think really taking a look at choosing the appropriate review tool and technology early on in the process is something really key. And the only way you know how to do that is if you understand the data uh, and you understand the matter at hand. I think also the third stumbling block that we're seeing is not selecting and managing vendors well, um, we'll talk about that a little bit later in the process, but I guess what I would, uh, I would say simply is that you need to have a team lead. You need to have somebody that's driving that management aspect, and the most successful matters that we work on with outside counsel as well as corporate in-house counsel is where there is somebody managing that overall process and connecting the dots amongst the variable experts and vendors that need to be utilized in these type of, uh, whether they're small, mid-size, or very large engagements. And let me just add one more thing to that particular uh, issue of stumbling blocks. From a technological standpoint, we need to realize that technology is progressing much faster than the law is. 
and we use some very light but very uh, robust, if that's not a contradiction, tools that allow us to go in with the data to understand and take a look at the data at a server level before you pull everything out. One of the worst things you want to do is go into a client site and try to pull off as much information as you can without any clear direction and understanding about what you're dealing with. Some of the technology that's coming out these days allow you to go in at a server level and take a look at log files, take a look at communications, understanding who's talking with whom at one particular time, and build a tight circle around the individuals, the time frames, the subject matters, and that allows you to narrow the amount of information that you pull out from your client, and therefore it reduces the amount of documents you need to review downstream. Well, and as I'm sure, Joel, in, in working with you and seeing that in practice, uh, that's a con- considerable cost saving for the client, knowing that they can really get a definitive set of, of documents to review versus trying to just go through the entire universe. And, and one of the in- interesting cases that just came out was a client attempting to do that review by themselves with some senior associates and without using technology, without using consultants, without really using the the leverage that the law firm, experienced law firm, experienced client, experienced consultant can provide. And the court ultimately demanded that the parties use some technology of some sort to winnow down the information, because otherwise it would have taken the lawyers a good year or so to review the documents that technology could probably have winnowed down to a month or so. Chad, you mentioned, uh, you know, making sure that you're putting together the right team, looking into bringing in a team lead. Can legal support professionals help mitigate some of these problems? And if so, how how could they help? Absolutely, Dawn. Um, we, we see this coming in two different buckets. Number one, uh, the law firm, outside counsel and corporate uh, legal department are analyzing internally what type of legal support professionals, which can include attorneys, uh, paralegals, specialized legal support professionals that have e-discovery and technology backgrounds, analyzing who on their teams uh, has that expertise, and number two, who's really available to be able to assist on those engagements. Because of the growing nature of this type of, uh, uh, of litigation and, and the growing nature of e-discovery, we see stats out there that you know, when the rules of, of civil procedure changed, it was about a $1 billion industry back in 2006. This year, it's expected to be an $8 billion industry as far as spend within the e-discovery area by 2012, an $11 billion spend. So, you know, to Joel's point, technology is actually outpacing the, the, the legal piece right now. And instead of worrying about how to get through 300 banker boxes, the question is, how do we get through 20 million emails? And so you may not have the internal staff that either has the expertise or simply the number uh, of internal staff you may need for these reviews. And that's where utilizing a uh, staffing company that has legal experience, maybe even financial staffing uh, capabilities as well as technical staffing capabilities, you can augment your team without increasing your overhead. And that's really key to bring in specialists who can manage this process as well as deliver the end product uh, at a lower cost uh, perspective. These specialists, whether they're in-house or whether you're bringing in a third party, can also push back on unrealistic deadlines that either a project lead or a lawyer um, may put in, in place simply because Um, there's not a fundamental understanding of the technology or the requirements of of the data that needs to be pulled. 
these legal support professionals many times can also take candidates that don't have a lot of experience in this area and very quickly get them up to speed in how to assist in this matter. Um, and that can also help reduce costs. So there's a number of different ways that you can go with that, Don. And let me just add to that. One of the, uh, the unique areas that lawyers run into is this whole uh, issue of law and technology. Uh, there's, a, there's a presumption that lawyers should understand both the law and in, in this case, sometimes the technology when they're talking to regulators. But in fact, that's a very difficult discussion. And um, I think what we need to make sure is that the litigation support professionals can help the lawyers and regulators and anyone on the other side understand what's feasible, what's reasonable, what's cost-effective, offer other solutions. Uh, some of the agencies, uh, the federal agencies now have outlines of what they expect uh, from a load file perspective, from a production standpoint, from a review tool uh, perspective. Uh, so there, there needs to be a real dialogue, uh, and it can't be something where you just roll over and say, okay, you can have all the things that we've got or commit to something that you don't know if you can truly produce it, that you're, you're inclined to produce. So I think that there's a balance between cooperation and setting reasonable expectations with, uh, with the agency or the opposing counsel. But to do that, you truly need to educate yourself. And, and I know personally that Many of the agencies have brought in uh, uh, counsel and, and consultants to talk to them about the types of questions that they should ask or that they can ask of the folks that are, that are subject to subpoenas. Uh, what is reasonable, what's not reasonable? The same thing is true at the Supreme Court level and the state, uh, uh, at a state level. The New York Supreme Court and the Massachusetts Supreme Court and a number of other courts in the, in the country have invited uh, folks to come in there and train them on e-discovery best practices. And I use best practice as kind of a loose term to describe what's reasonable. And, and again, it, it, it varies from time to time, but I can't impress an, enough on the, uh, the importance of getting lit support professionals, paralegals, IT, litigation support managers to help the attorneys and the, uh, the regulators, the requesters of the information, to understand what's feasible, what's possible, what's reasonable, and what's doable. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we will continue our conversation with Chad and Joel. To find, hire, and retain the best legal professionals, it's critical to have a sound hiring strategy in place. Robert Half Legal works with law firms and corporate legal departments to create effective staffing plans that can adapt to changing workload levels, realize significant cost savings, and improve the overall management of human resources. We offer a wide range of resources to assist hiring managers and job candidates, including our annual salary guide, industry-leading workplace research, and valuable interactive tools. For more information, call us at 800-870-8367 or visit roberthalflegal.com. Welcome back to the Robert Half Legal Report on Legal Talk Network. Uh, my name is Dawn Antonelli, and I'm here today with attorney Chad Volkert and Joel Westoff. Our next question is about cost containment. So we've talked a lot about that so far today. Would like to get your opinion on any other options for cost containment in a process that can quickly spiral out of control. Yeah, absolutely. Let me uh, let me start out with saying the more you know at the outset, the better. So one strong recommendation is to take the time for some preliminary steps. Ask questions. One of the most important things any lawyer should do, any paralegal, any team, any SWAT team that's involved in litigation, is to set up some early 
interviews with employees that are considered likely to, to contain or possess or know about information that may be relevant to the litigation. Uh, the, these custodial interviews are absolutely critical. One of the things that I always encourage people to do is is ask a couple questions. Number one, is there anybody else I should be talking to other than you who might have more information to share? The second question I would say is, is there any other place that I should look other than the place that we've discussed? Very often, they, the employee will sit there and think about another database or another accountant or perhaps an employee that just left that might have some information. So questions, uh, I can't over, overstate the importance of those. Uh, knowing where things are, where to look, how the organizations are structured. I think we talked a little bit earlier about getting some data mapping done at a very, very early stage. We call it topology or data mapping. And we, one thing we need to understand is that, well, well it's easy to say get a, get a data map. Most data maps are, are not necessarily consistent even within the organization. And, and, and so you have to dig a little bit deeper to understand truly what is in practice and what is in theory and make sure that you understand uh, the difference. Um, so uh, one more thing I'll add and, and, and see what um, Chad has to offer on this question is doing sampling of the data before you begin is absolutely essential. This was taking place even 10 years ago and even more important now. It was included in the federal rules. It can take any number of forms. You can take the top three custodians, the bottom three custodians in terms of important, see what comes out of that, and then build. But it's very iterative. You need to take a look at what you've got, build on top of that, come back, and do some more testing. Well, I think, Joel, you, you know, uh, by using a couple of analogies, you're talking about getting into the details before mapping out your, your strategy. You know, I guess I would look at it, instead of flying at 30,000 feet uh, above the ground in a, in a high-speed jet, use a helicopter low to the ground to zoom in on the details of what you have before you. You can certainly assess the landscape before you drop people on the ground if you're actually closer to the details and assessing from a smaller perspective than a larger perspective. You're close enough to get a solid understanding of what the case revolves around and involves, but you're not too deep into it where you're losing sight of the bigger picture. Um, and maybe, Joel, you've got uh, a couple of examples, uh, one or two that you'd want to share with the group on how you've really been able to do that in your case assessment. Right. And, and just to step back for two seconds, what often happens, the lawyers get together and they discuss the custodian names, maybe some search terms. They agree on those terms. They create an agreement. These are the terms. These are the search terms. These are the custodians. This is what we're going to do. Uh, that's fine. What we have done in the past, in the very recent past, is to test those terms, is to go take a look at the network, uh, run some queries using the custodian names, using some search queries that, that counsel has agreed to with the opposing side, and see what the hits are, see how accurate those hits are, how useful those hits are, whether or not the terms are fully encompassed of all the, the potential issues involved with litigation. By doing some tests at the corporate site, and again, being mindful that we don't want to create too much of a business interruption uh, for the corporation's normal business activities, one can go to the corporate site, run a number of different queries using any number of software, forensic softwares or other uh, appliances that you can attach to the network, and test, assess, validate whether or not the terms that are being used. 
again, I was involved in this kind of thing not too long ago in London, where we didn't want to be overly expansive of the information that we collected, and we certainly didn't want to bring any information back that would violate any uh, blocking statutes uh, from a European perspective. I'm talking about privacy right there. But in this particular case, we were able to go back to counsel and say, you know, the terms that you agreed to with the opposing side are not going to yield the type of results that you probably anticipated. Uh, and so they were able to go back and continue to refine that list, refine the custodians, identify new ones, rule out other ones, and ultimately come up with something that I would consider useful to everyone and reasonable and defensible downstream in the case that that type of process, that type of search process, was challenged by opposing side or by the court. So really what you're saying, Joel, and not so many words, is to illustrate it in another way uh, from a builder's perspective, measure twice, cut once, right? Um, and have a full understanding uh, of, of how you then transition from that analysis into a budget perspective. Right. And, and the cost, I think, as anyone who's been involved in e-discovery, the cost can be enormous if you don't take the time to plan. And again, we use this, I think that carpenter's or builder's perspective is spot on, because what we're talking about in all of this is the importance of planning, the importance of understanding, the importance of understanding your assumptions understand the numbers. And let's talk a little bit about the budget. Uh, certainly, uh, when we talk about the top 20 costs, the review issue, uh, if you've got an inefficient review with, with a number of senior associates or partners looking at uh, trillions or if not trillions, millions of documents without any clear strategy on what you're looking for, without a winning, winnowing down that information, that's not efficient. Backing up, uh, once you prefer doc, uh, once you start to do the preservation of the documents, you need to get a forensics team in place. There's two different schools of thought relating to getting a forensics team and having someone collect data um, by a professionally certified and, and a person who can testify to the process, the methodology, um, and that kind of thing. One of the issues that many people have to understand is this issue of proportionality. If the case is worth $50,000 and it's going to cost $20,000 or $30,000 just to do the collection, then that may not make sense. But certainly from the get-go, forensics and forensic collection is a cost. Um, processing the data, and what I mean by processing is taking a large amount of information and running filters on it, running search terms, running deduplication software on it to make sure that the, the information is culled down to a point where the only remaining information is something that has some relevance to the case and everything else, like emails to uh, relating to company picnics, shopping lists, that kind of thing, are culled out. Uh, so forensics, processing, review time, uh, certainly choosing the tool, make sure that you've got the right uh, tool to use and the fact that the model that you're using to choose that tool uh, is appropriate. Well, I think to your point, Joel, the human factor that, that plays a role in cost containment and where to save money, that review piece makes up 60 plus percent of your total cost. So I think when we look at it from a candidate standpoint of who's actually reviewing these documents, you, you mentioned it doesn't make a lot of sense to have senior partners, senior associates reviewing millions of documents without calling it down, number one. Number two is, are the individuals reviewing the documents really skilled and adept at doing that review? And so one of the things that we work hand-in-hand -hand with our law firms and corporate legal departments on is making sure that we're providing the right talent not just talent, individuals uh, that are used to going through these documents and that really make it um, uh, a career to handle document reviews 
are just much more adept at, at going through materials quickly and efficiently. So somebody may take an hour to go through two documents, may take an experienced document review attorney uh, on a contract basis only 20 to 30 minutes, right? So they're moving through documents at a much more efficient pace, obviously reducing your overall cost. So I think as, as you look, whether it's document review, whether you're looking at tools, whether you're looking at expert witnesses or forensic analysis, you need to focus with your vendors on receiving a budget from them, getting quotes from them, and really drilling down and holding them accountable to coming up with the best solutions in tandem with your outside counsel and or in-house counsel, depending on which side you're on. So I would certainly ask for a budget range. I would work with them on the total solution um, and really think twice before committing the lowest cost provider. Um, I think that that's an important point as well. Uh, you need to get into discussions and say, does it make sense to save a dollar on the front end only to spend 10 later? Or does it make sense to spend $7 on the front end to actually save the $10 on the back end? So I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, Joel. Sure, absolutely. I think the uh, one of the things that I'm seeing is you've got a uh, very much a commoditization of certain parts of this process. And I'm speaking specifically about what we call processing or culling. And what we're seeing is some very low-cost providers saying we can do the e-discovery work for $100 or $50 a gig. That's the standard measure of of volume in electronic discovery case. We can do it for rock bottom. But the problem is, is that they don't include other things such as reporting. Attorneys like to know what hasn't been identified, what files were password protected, what files were deduped, what weren't, what custodians were duped, and what weren't. And one of the things that we're seeing from a low-cost standpoint, at least on the discovery processing uh, perspective, is that there's some cut corners. I guess I'm not sure. That there's no other way to say that. People cut corners. Uh, they may be trying to make a quick butt. But the problem is when you keep the price at a very low margin, there's typically something you leave out. And courts are, are increasingly looking at the process, the technology, the experience, the methodology, the number of people and the number of processes that you have in place to make sure that whatever decision that you ultimately come to, that decision was based on a number of factors, a number of processes, and and sometimes technologies, uh, they do have their weaknesses, but one of the key pieces that, that I've discovered, and I think lawyers and judges like, is a report about what was done, what wasn't done, because that is a paper trail in a digital format. Well, and, and a lot of times you see lower cost providers having to redo their work, right? Error rates are up. So I think it's very important as you're having discussions with your third party providers that you're having those discussions on the front end as far as what is the error rate, right? What happens if we have to redo work? What are my costs? Are there hidden costs? I just heard of an issue recently where uh, it, the review sounded very attractive from a cost perspective, but there was a back-end cost of a management fee that was literally as expensive as the review. So make sure that you're really getting into the details um, and going through that process with, with each of your third-party providers. Uh, Don, you, you can tell Joel and I could spend a lot of time on this. But uh, hopefully we've hit enough of those topics, and, and I'll turn it back over to you. Well, that about does it for this edition of the Robert Half Legal Report. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. 
And I just want to thank Chad and Joel for being with us today. Chad, before we go, if listeners want to find out more information about what we discussed here today, what is your contact information or any websites they can use as a resource? Absolutely, Dawn. Uh, obviously, uh, they can. Uh, our listeners can go to uh, roberthalflegal.com. My personal contact information is Charles period Volkert, B as in Victor, O-L-K-E-R-T, at rhi.com. And I welcome emails uh, from any of our listeners. And if I don't have the answer, we'll certainly do our best to find the answer for you. Great. And Joel, what about your contact information? My email is joel, J-O-E-L dot Westhoff, and I'll spell that, W-U-E-S-T-H-O-F-F at protivity.com. That's P-R-O. T-I-V-I-T-I dot com. Please feel free to reach out to us. I mean, that's, that's why we're here today, to answer questions uh, that may be a little bit, seem insurmountable. But there is always a solution. Great. Thank you. And if you want more information on Robert Half Legal, you can go to roberthalflegal.com or you can call us at 1-800-870-8367. We will see you next time on the Robert Half Legal Report. Thanks for listening to this Robert Half Legal podcast. To keep up to date on the second part of this discussion on practical tips for maintaining control with e-discovery, subscribe to the Robert Half Legal RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes, or visit RobertHalfLegal.com forward slash Media Room and click on Media Library. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Robert Half Legal connects the most highly skilled candidates with the best positions in the legal profession. Join us again for the latest information in the next edition of the Robert Half Legal Report here on the Legal Talk Network.